your seats, and as you do so, grab your Bibles and head on over to Philippians chapter 4. Uh, technically, we began chapter 4 last week, um, but as we talked about just briefly, verse 1 of chapter 4 seems to fit much better in with what Paul has said throughout all of chapter 3, and chapters and verses were something that were added later. Uh, they're not inspired. Paul didn't sit down and say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to insert a verse here now and then continue writing. Those were added later and, and really for our benefit so that I could say something like, take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 4 so that you know where to go. And uh, so there's an ease of access and referencing to the scriptures that those verses give us throughout chapter 3. Paul has been beginning to give very specific life practical advice and commandments to this church that he is writing to. Really, chapter 1 and 2, you have him walking through a lot of theological concepts that take place in the context of him updating the Philippian church about his imprisonment about those who are within the imperial guard, who are hearing the gospel, those within the church in Rome that are trying to create more headache and affliction for him by going and preaching the gospel. Paul gives them a command in chapter 1 to stand together, to strive together, to be fearless in the face of opposition. He then gives them the example of Christ, of what that looks like, and how, how we're supposed to consider others more significant than ourselves, to have a same mind as one another. And we're told to have the same mind as Christ. There's to be a unity there, and we can look to Jesus as the example, as the one who ultimately left the glories of heaven to take on human flesh, and he considered himself and made himself nothing, considering the needs of others more significant than his own. And we get to the end of chapter 2, and Paul's telling him about Timothy and Epaphroditus and how those gentlemen are coming, and Timothy he hopes to send soon, but Epaphroditus is coming right away. And we begin to shift then into chapter 3, where Paul tells them and gives them this warning. He says, look out. Look out for... This group of people, which he identifies as dogs and evildoers and mutilators of the flesh. And in the beginning of chapter 3, before he gets to the command, he tells them to rejoice in the Lord. And says, look, it's safe for me, to, it's, it's easy for me to write this to you, and it is safe for you. Throughout the whole book of Philippians, he's been very, very concerned with this idea of joy, writing himself several different times about how he has joy, or in this situation, I will choose to rejoice. He's commanded them at times before, in chapter 2, verse 17, rejoice with me, be glad with me, and now he just, he tells them, rejoice in the Lord. And then he says, watch out. Watch out for those who want to steal your joy. And he names a specific group of people and a specific theological error that this group of people were teaching. And they were teaching that you needed to do things in order for God to accept you. You needed to do things in order for God to love you. That your, your confidence was actually in your flesh, which is, which is a way to say your confidence was in what you can do and what you've brought to the table and so watch out for whomever it may be that wants to tell you that God loves you more because you're here this morning in church. That God would have loved you more if you had given another $100 when the plates went by. Watch out for those people. Because those people have some tremendous theological errors that you need to be on guard against. And those errors, ultimately, if we allow those conclusions to press as far as they would go... We can see pretty clearly how that conclusion or that teaching that God's love for you is dependent on what you do, that ultimately leads to fear. If we're to say God's acceptance of you is dependent on what you do, then we run around wondering, have we done enough? Paul says, no, God's acceptance for you, his love for you is based on what Christ 
has done. And as we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we are given his perfect obedience. It's credited to our account. So it's not up to you and I to try to do a bunch of good stuff so that God will accept us. We place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. All of his perfect obedience is credited to our account. And that becomes then the only foundation which then obedience to God here and now, today, can begin to actually have a sure and steady footing. If my relationship with God is dependent on what I do, then I will be compelled and really handcuffed with fear, wondering, have I done enough? Did I give enough money this morning? Did I attend enough Sunday schools this past year? Did I get married in the right church? Did I, I, did I, did I make it to the last communion service? Did I, it, what, see, the emphasis all becomes on what I've done. And so then my obedience to God is not out of love. It's not out of joy. It's out of fear. So if we lay that foundation correctly, that God accepts us not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done, then we can begin to actually figure out how to correctly understand the commands the Scriptures do give us to obey, to do some things, to not do some other things. And that's where Paul then goes, really, for the rest of chapter 3. He begins to unpack in some really big, broad categories of what it looks like to, to be a follower of Christ and to have your choices, have your obedience, have your lives look like and grow in maturity and in holiness and in righteousness. And what Paul said that we looked at directly last week was that he told us, look, you want to know how to be more godly? You want to know how to look more like Jesus? Not so that God will love you, but because he does, find people who are godly. And then just do what they do. Find the older people in your church who know the Lord, who love the Lord, who have followed the Lord for a long time, and then just do what they do. They get up in the morning and do devotions. Well, you get up in the morning and do devotions. They spend X number of minutes a day in prayer. Why don't you do that? It's not that there's a formula to it, but it's that these people are more mature than you are, and so just imitate them. And then in turn, we're called as disciple makers to find those who would be less mature than us and extend the invitation for them to follow us as we follow Jesus. And that really is, is the most simplest way to understand and unpack what discipleship is. It's following people who follow Jesus. And inviting others who are less mature or younger in age to follow you as you follow Jesus. And he ends that section, which is verse 1 in chapter 4, by commanding the Philippian church to stand firm. He began chapter 3 with a command to rejoice in the Lord. He then told them to be on guard for those who want to steal their joy by placing them under a yoke of fear, a yoke of slavery, that what they do depends and makes God love them more or less. He says, watch out for those who want to steal your joy by making your relationship with the Lord based on what you do. And he ends this section that we looked at last week by saying, stand firm in the Lord, having just told us that there are people who walk as enemies to the cross. Their minds are set on earthly things, but as believers, our minds should be set on heavenly things because our citizenship is in heaven. And so Paul gave us these big, broad categories over the last couple weeks. 
He's been telling us, this is how I want you to think about the process of growing in holiness, growing in righteousness, growing to look more like Jesus. I want you to think about that process in these big, broad categories. We threw out the the big theological word, sanctification, to describe and give give a, a title, a term to what that process is. It just means becoming more and more like Jesus. I look more like Jesus tomorrow than I did today, or Lord willing, I look more like Jesus today than I did yesterday. That's the process of sanctification. He's saying, I want you to be on guard against those who want to steal your joy by making God's acceptance of you based on what you do. But I also want you to Stand firm in the Lord in the midst of those, whether they be inside the church or out in our broader culture, who walk as enemies of the cross, who set their minds on earthly things, whose gods are their bellies, whose end is destruction, who glory in shame. So in the midst of that, stand firm. Paul is going to go one layer deeper this morning as we get into chapter 4. And he's he's going to begin to help us apply these same truths that much further. The question this morning, again, is the same question we had and thought through last week. How do I grow in maturity and holiness while I wait for the return of Jesus? Last week, this is what Paul said. It was kind of some big categories. Imitate godly believers. Stand firm in the Lord. This morning, he's going to get a little bit more detailed in his explanation. Next week, he gets really detailed in his explanation. And quite frankly, next week is one of those passages which are really easy to understand and terribly difficult to figure out how to do. It, It will rub us if we let it. And it's supposed to. It'll be easy to understand and unpack, and it's an entirely different thing to live out. And so we're going to look at verses 2 to 7 this morning in chapter 4 and think through what it is that Paul is saying as he adds just that other layer of specific detail. We've not gotten real specific yet in answering this question, how do I grow in holiness and maturity here and now? We're going to get much more specific this morning, even more so next week. But before we go any further, let's pray together, and then we'll hop into the text and start taking a look at what Paul wrote. Well, God, we pray that you'd help us to answer that question, that question of what it looks like to grow in holiness and maturity. God, would you, would you grow our desire for that? God, would you make us that much more discontent with average, with good enough, with better than the next guy. God, would you help us to be dissatisfied with even the smallest areas of compromise? God, shine the spotlight on those areas. God, we pray that you'd help us to answer this question. How do we grow in holiness? How do we grow in maturity? How do we look more like Jesus tomorrow than we do today? God, we thank you that we we make choices. We obey, but we do so on this foundational promise that the good work you began, you have promised and are faithful to complete. And so even this process of looking more like Christ tomorrow than we did today is one that you're working in. God, there's a tug and there's a, there's a struggle there to understand exactly what that looks like. But you told us earlier in this book that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling because it's you who works in us to will and to work for your good pleasure. So God, this morning, help us to know and understand and, 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 and rightly conclude that as we talk about obedience, 
We're not doing any of these things so that you will love us more. But it's because you have accepted us and you do because of what Christ has done. That we in turn respond. And we forget what lies ahead. Or we forget what lies behind and we strain for what lies ahead. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Let's go to verse 2. We'll look at verses 2 and 3 into 4 a little bit. And there's really two big ideas that we're going to unpack here this morning. The first is found in verses 2 to 4. And there in verse 2, Paul begins and writes, I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. So Paul begins with this command for this Philippian church and these two ladies in particular to do some things. And he writes to them, and Epaphroditus is going to carry this letter, the 800-some miles it was from Rome to Philippi, and he's going to return home to the Philippian church, and he's going to begin unfolding this letter. Now, whether Epaphroditus read the letter or not, we have no idea. More than likely, this letter would have been read all in one sitting. The church would have gotten together. They would have, somebody would have read it. And they would have listened to what Paul had written to them. And and I just wonder from a human standpoint, if Epaphroditus say he was the reader, if maybe he was kind of a little worried how chapter 4 verse 2 would get received. Because Paul's going to name drop and he, he calls out some ladies who are not agreeing. And his entreatment, his plead to them is that they would agree in the Lord. And he says, I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche. I plead with them to agree in the Lord. Now, we're not told what the nature of their disagreement was. I would submit to you that I don't believe it was of a gospel issue. Paul, earlier in chapter 3, at the beginning, verse 2 on following, he has no problems calling out the dogs, the mutilators of the flesh, the evildoers, those that want to preach and have a contrary gospel message, one that is, you're saved by your works. He has no problems identifying that group and saying, look out for them. These ladies aren't a part of that group. He has no problems earlier in chapter 1 where he talks about people within the church who were preaching the right gospel, but for the purpose of afflicting him, he has no problems articulating that issue, and these ladies aren't included in that issue either. And so I would submit to you that their, their disagreement was probably in regards to personal preferences Maybe, maybe convictions, personal convictions, but was not a gospel-centered disagreement. And part of what inc- it helps us understand that, I think, is that Paul identifies these women as believers. He's identifying them as those who have labored side by side. He's identifying them in verse 3 as those who have their names written in the book of life. He's identifying these ladies as believers. And he's saying, look, there's a disagreement there. I'm well aware of it. And I'm pleading with both of them to agree in the Lord. Now that phrase, agree in the Lord, is a significant phrase. I want to just break it down briefly for you. We'll look at the word in first, and then we're going to come back and look at agree second. All right, the word in, it's a word that communicates a focus. It communicates a grounding. It communicates 
a centering. It's a preposition that communicates your relationship with something else. And so Paul, throughout this book, has used this word in time and time again to write about some tremendously significant theological truths. I'm going to put all the references on the screen for you, and we're not going to look at any of them this morning. So I know some of you like to take pictures of the screen, at least I assume it's of the screen and not of me when I do this for you. So this would be that time to just take a picture of the screen so that this coming week you can just look up all these references on your own to understand what he's saying. But there they are, 22 different times. Paul uses this two-letter word, this preposition, in, and he's referring to something with a Christ-centered focus. He says, my imprisonment is in Christ Jesus. And most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. He talks about the Philippian church glorying in Christ. He talks about being found in Him. He tells the Philippian church, receive Epaphroditus in the Lord. This word gets used time and time again to speak to and reference a a centering, a focus, a grounding. And I think the idea is, is that because of who God is, Because of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, because of God's sovereignty, because of God's faithfulness, because of all of that, the totality of who he is, rejoice in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. That that word in kind of takes everything about who God is places it before us. And Paul writes, agree in the Lord. I want these women to agree in the Lord. I think most likely, as I said a minute ago, this is probably an agreement that they need to have that's in the realm of their convictions, personal opinions. The word agree is the same word Paul used in chapter 2, verse 2, where he tells them to have the same mind. The word same is the word agree. And these women are being called out by Paul to agree in the Lord. I think that phrase and how the word in functions is incredibly important because it helps us see that they may disagree about what the actual issue is, but they're able and they are mature enough to agree in the Lord. We try to unpack this in this way. There are some things that are called absolutes. There's some things called convictions. There's then another tier called opinions, preferences. Absolutes would be really the core doctrinal issues of the faith. Triune nature of God. The inspiration and errancy of the scriptures. Jesus Christ taking on flesh, becoming incarnate. Jesus Christ being fully God. Jesus Christ coming back. The reality of heaven and hell. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Paul takes issue with some of those absolutes in the beginning of chapter 3 where he says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for the mutilators of the flesh because they're telling you that salvation is not by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They're telling you it is because you bring something to the table as well. So those absolutes are areas that have to be pointed out. They have to be called out in love and in kindness, but we have to be willing to say there's a core doctrinal issue here. There is something significant that is a misunderstanding of the Scriptures. But then we get into convictions. And convictions is this realm that that people who love the Lord can have differing convictions. And this is not an exhaustive list. But what we're called to do, I believe, is agree in the Lord. 
some of these things on the list that I gave perhaps range in their level of significance. But let's just take baptism and communion. Here at Grace, we will actually see next Sunday Emma Gardner get baptized. She's going to go forward three times, three different times under the water. If you've been to a Baptist church, they probably go one time backwards. And we'll both do it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They have their convictions in regards to why it's one time backwards. We have our convictions in regards to why it's three times forward. But both of us are going to celebrate what each other do because it's a believer's baptism. It is, in next week's example, Emma Gardner declaring her faith in Jesus Christ and her willingness to follow him. And so we can disagree. We can agree in the Lord and yet have a different conviction. Some of you have different opinions or convictions about what believers should do in regards to drinking, in regards to dancing. In this room alone are parents who homeschool, parents who Christian school, and parents who public school. That can be a bit of a powder keg at times. The classic church example is we argued and split the church over the color of the carpet. Let's agree in the Lord. How about political affiliation? Republican, Democrat, tell you what matters more, are they a Christian? Now, step in and have the conversation, engage on the issues, but at the end of the day, what unites you in Christ is far greater than what distinguishes you between red or blue. How about how you define a purpose of an elder board? whether women can be deacons or not. Those are just ideas, perhaps. Parenting styles could make the list. Do we immunize or not? What type of instruments should be played on the platform on a Sunday morning? Which Bible translations should we use? And this one's really funny for me. Um, I, I've joked before, we, I preach out of the ESV, the Everyone Should version, and... Uh, <laughs> And, and, and again, I know I got to be super careful with that because I'll joke about what I really actually don't mean. Um, but it's it's really strange. We're like, I feel like a friend connection with people who use the ESV, even if I don't know them. And I was telling Carrie about this the other day. We 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 were we were at a at a place where we saw there was an ESV Bible there, and like and like I felt this connection to this person, and it was the strangest thing. And and it is like, okay, well, I got to make sure that that doesn't get overblown uh, because there are those that would say, you know, KJV only and anything else is of the devil. I, that's certainly not where I'm at in regards to the ESV. But we got to be careful with that. I, where I stand on that is get a Bible translation you can understand and read that one. And let's do that. But, you know, if you want the everyone should version, you can pick one of those up at your local Christian bookstore as well. Uh, here's Paul's point. That our unity in Christ demands a civility to each other because our citizenship is in heaven. And what unites us is greater than what distinguishes us. Our unity in Christ demands a civility to each other because what unites us is greater than what distinguishes us. And I think that's in part why Paul returns to this command in verse 4 to rejoice in the Lord. It's where he began in chapter 3, right before he begins to articulate some serious theological errors that were gospel issues. And he returns to this now as he's beginning to unpack what relational unity looks like in the church as well. Rejoice in the Lord. Have your Christ-centered contentment and gladness rooted and focused on Christ and the Lord and all that that is. Again, I will say rejoice in the Lord. See, the truthfulness of who Christ is, what he has done, what he is currently doing, what he promises to do in the future should cause a change in our thinking as we view life and even as we view those who may disagree with us. 
Because what unites us is greater than what distinguishes us. And we are citizens of heaven. We are not like those who think and have their minds set on earthly things. Paul continues in verse 5, I think, continuing this idea of what relational unity looks like. And he says, let your reasonableness be known. There's another command that we are given. Let your reasonableness be known. That word reasonableness, it means graciousness. It means forbearance. It can mean tolerance. Not, Not in the sense of how tolerance is defined today, where it's we're good with everything that happens, but tolerance in the sense where we can both have opposing opinions, but have the maturity to recognize that if they're not core gospel issues, we can agree to disagree. You might have wanted blue carpet in the room. Some of you may be happy with the carpet we have. We're going to agree. There's a tolerance. We're not out to make everybody want blue carpet. But we're willing to go, all right, okay, you want a blue carpet? Okay. We're going to agree in the Lord. And he says, look, let your reasonableness be known. The command there is for you to demonstrate in such a way that others experientially understand that you're a reasonable person. That's the command. That you demonstrate and make known that others would be experientially acquainted. It's not that everybody has to agree on everything. We agree wholesale on all the things that matter, but we're willing to hold open hand the things that don't matter nearly as much. We can have differing opinions, strong opinions. What unites us is greater than what distinguishes us. Paul says the Lord is at hand. Let your reasonableness be known. To everyone, the Lord is at hand. How do we grow in holiness and relationship and in Christ's likeness here and now and in regards to our relationships with one another? Well, in part, we agree in the Lord and we don't let secondary issues become primary issues. And Paul says, look, the Lord is at hand. So we agree in the Lord. He tells us to rejoice in the Lord. In the second part of verse 5, that phrase, the Lord is at hand, I think functions at a bit of a hinge point for us because Paul is going to begin now stepping into the second area of where we can grow in Christ's likeness and in holiness and in maturity. And it's a different area than we had just considered a few moments ago. That was relational. This is not so much relational, but perhaps something that we even more can identify with. And Paul says, the day or the Lord is at hand. And here's another one of those slides I'm just going to put up on the screen because the reality of the return of Christ or the day of the Lord is something that Paul speaks of consistently throughout the book of Philippians. So you want to know what to do next week for your devotional time? There you go. Just take those passages and look at the constant themes that he's tracing through in regards to the day of the Lord, the imminent return of Christ and what he will do. The Lord is at hand. And then in beginning in verse 6, we have another command given to us. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. So there's the command. Do not be anxious about anything. The word anxious there just means to worry. The word anything, I looked it up into the Greek, it means anything. Don't be anxious about anything and everything. Prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. 
Now, we got to chat here briefly about this idea of anxiety. Because I do not believe there is anything sinful by seeking medical attention to help balance imbalances that may exist that contribute to anxiety. Qualified medical professionals, I don't believe there's anything sinful in going and meeting with them and having them run blood analysis and chem analysis and all of that to find out if there's some medical imbalances, chemical imbalances that need to be addressed. I mean, we don't tell the person who wears eyeglasses that they're sinning because they went to the eye doctor. And this is part of where we have to understand that the brokenness of the fall affects everything. And, and, and I feel in many ways like there, there's been this stigma in the church that like the fall affected everything but the brain. And so if you just were more mentally tough, you wouldn't struggle in that way. And I, I think that's nonsense. Again, we wouldn't tell the person who wears eyeglasses if their eyes were just a little stronger. It, it's foolishness to apply that argument through other things. You broke your arm, well, just, just think good things. And you're, really? The brokenness of the fall. I believe, has affected and touched more than we can get our minds wrapped around and our comprehension wrapped around. And so if there exists those imbalances which are contributing to that, I'm going to tell you what Carrie and I did for our son Tobin. We took him to the eye doctor, got him glasses, because God's in his common grace has used men and women and gifted men and women in such a way that they are able to understand the human body and they can begin to address some of these things. Now, we cannot conclude that all that's lacking is the right balance of chemicals. Because the command is to rejoice or the command is to not be anxious. And even those who may not struggle with the imbalance of certain chemicals in their brain are still commanded to not be anxious. Don't be anxious for anything, but in everything. By prayer, supplication, let your requests be made known unto God. It's everything that we're supposed to pray for. One pastor wrote this, and I thought it was super helpful. Biblical faith sees prayer as an action of confidence. Not a last resort, but an open-handed, passionate, and persistent integration of human hopes and fears into the purposes of God. What does that mean? We pray because the Lord's at hand. We pray because of the truth of the gospel and what God has promised to do. We pray because he's promised to finish the good work that he has begun. Biblical faith sees prayer as an action of confidence. God, I know you're going to do something. I know the good work that you began, you are faithful to complete it at the day of Christ Jesus. God, I know that I'm awaiting a Savior from heaven who's going to transform my lowly body to be like your glorious body. God, I pray because I know you are at hand. God, I pray because all the promises of you are found and find their yes in Christ. That's why we pray. And we do so with confidence because of who God is. And we do so in asking him to move and to work. And we do so with supplication we do so with thanksgiving, and with thanksgiving we make our requests known unto God. That idea of thanksgiving is a tremendous one, because thanksgiving 
And to be thankful means that you've recognized that you have a dependency that's been met. Let's play it out this way. Helpful analogy, maybe. All right, I've got two working vehicles. Both my car and my van, they're working great right now. If you came up to me after the service and said, I'd like to give you my car. I don't need your car. I've got two working cars. Both have heated seats. It's wonderful. And we actually have an expression in our English language to kind of help us navigate that moment, right? We say, well, thanks, but no thanks. I, I appreciate the gesture. I appreciate the offer, but it's not really needed. And so thank you, but no thank you. I, I don't need your vehicle. But what if our van got totaled later today? Or we, I walk outside and it's you know, a tree fell on it or something. Well, now I'm dependent. I've got a need. You came up after the service, say, I, I, you can have my van. Well, that, that's it's a whole different ballgame. Because there's a need now that you've met. I'm thankful in a different way. I'm not just thankful at the gesture that you've offered. I'm thankful for the fact that you now have met a significant need in my life in ways that I could not have met myself. I think that's the idea here where we look at thanksgiving and how our prayer is to be with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is an attitude that recognizes dependency. Thanksgiving is, is the recognition that we are dependent and God has promised to provide and supply and He has. And so we pray with thanksgiving because we know He's a good Father who gives good gifts to His children. And we pray with confidence and thanksgiving because He's promised to always do so. I want to caution you here. Thanksgiving is not presumption. God, you may pray for a million dollars. You may pray with thanksgiving for a million dollars. God, I am praying with thanksgiving for a million dollars. That would solve all of our financial worries. That would, I, would no, I would no longer have any financial anxiety if you just gave me a million dollars and I'm going to do so and pray so with thanksgiving because I know that you've promised to do all of those things. I, I would submit to you that is presumption. That is not thanksgiving. The prayer of thanksgiving is, Lord, you have always provided in the past. And whether you provide me now with a million dollars or you provide me with just a little bit tomorrow to meet tomorrow's needs, I'm thankful for who you are and for your promises to never or always supply our needs. So Thanksgiving's not presumption. I've been in prayer meetings like that where the, it, it is spilled into presumption. God has not promised to say yes to every prayer we bring him. But he has promised to respond to our prayers for our good, for his glory, and with thanksgiving, we're to make our requests known unto God. We're to submit our requests. We're to tell Him our requests. And we don't do so because He doesn't already know. We do so, and we do so with confidence, expressing dependency on Him as the one who has the ability to supply and who always has. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 6, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, for they think they're going to be heard by their many words. You don't need big fancy words. You don't need a theological dictionary to pray. Now, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you even ask Him. God the Father is a good gift giver. He gives good gifts to His children. We pray about everything. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known unto God, because it's who He is. And Paul says this, and the peace of God, 
that word peace, it, it, it refers to a Christ-centered rest, a, a, a harmony. It, this is grounded in his sovereignty and the promises that God's a good gift giver. And what he gives us is for our good and his glory. That, that peace, that rest, that harmony, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There, quite frankly, are earthly reasons that lead us to worry. But we're commanded to not worry because of who God is. And we're not promised to know every single answer. We're not promised that everything that we request will be rubber-stamped yes the way we want. But we're commanded to not worry because of who He is and what He has promised to do. We're to set our minds on heavenly things. We're to recognize where our citizenship is. We're not to set our minds on earthly things. And I was trying to think this week of how to how to tell you what the peace of God feels like. And, and it, it, it's wild, in my opinion, it's probably wildly subjective, where it's God, the Holy Spirit, working in us in, in ways that are unique to us. And so I can just tell you how it feels for me. It, it feels like the pieces fit. It feels like the gears aren't grinding. You know that feeling when you're shifting and you miss the clutch, and you, but you, you drop the gear shift down, and, you, and you, it kicks in. It, it doesn't feel like we're grinding. It doesn't feel like, well, okay, if, if, those, if those 12 things all happened at the perfect time in the perfect way, and everything lines up, then, then okay. It doesn't feel like, well, all right, if I can just keep every single one of these plates spinning, then... And there it, it, no, it, it feels like rest. There's a settling. Even when the decision's hard, there's a settling. This is the decision to make. It may feel different for you. It's at least what it feels like for myself. And it doesn't ha- it's not that it has to make logical sense. But it's that what God is calling us to now, while there may be tremendous reasons to worry going forward, there's peace in this moment. We had that the day that we picked Tobin. I was in the dining room, Carrie was in the kitchen one of those more heated discussion moments. You guys never have those, I'm sure. Carrie said something to the effect of, what if we get this little boy with a heart disease and he just dies? And I was like, well, then he's going to experience love for two months. And we couldn't tell you how it gets defined. We couldn't, couldn't put it on a piece of paper. It was just in that moment There was rest. And it wasn't that there was all of a sudden the absence of significant questions that the future still had. It was this little guy. He's going to be ours. And there was a peace. There was a calm. There was a harmony. And that peace will guard us. Peace will protect us. The psalmist writes, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Psalm 23, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The command is to not be anxious about anything, 
but in everything, let our requests be made known to God. It's part of how we grow in holiness. It's part of how we grow in maturity. It's a recognition that, all right, Lord, there, there, are, there are real challenges to this life, and there are real questions that, that, that exist, and there, some of them are for here and now, and some of them are questions that are more future-oriented, and we're not sure what we're going to do. It, it's to not be consumed with the worry and anxiety of that, but rather let our requests be made known unto God. And so here's, the, here's where I think we probably find ourselves. Some of you might be on what might get referred to in kind of church circles as the mountaintop. Now, for whatever reasons that God has, has answered and you have some clarity about some things and, and His faithfulness has just recently been proven once again to be true and you, you look back and you go, holy cow, God brought us from there to here and it, He has done exactly what He said He would do. And others of you might be in the valley. You might not know when you're going to get out. You might not know what lies on the other side. There exists real significant questions. And here's what I want to do. Because this peace of God guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And it's a peace that's focused on who He is. And his promise to never leave us or forsake us. To do for us and complete in us the good work he began. So here's what I want to do. And we're going to transition. The band's going to come up. You guys can come now. If you have ever experienced God's faithfulness being proven. You weren't sure what the answer was going to be. You weren't sure when the difficult season was going to end. But God has proven himself faithful. Whether it just happened or it has happened at some point in your life at all. Would you stand? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to look around. Because if you're on your mountaintop and there's a valley coming someday, you've got a whole room of people that will tell you he's faithful. We don't just come on Sunday mornings to get preached at and exhorted. That's part of it. We come to be encouraged. And that encouragement happens through the body, through each other. If you're in the valley, you can look around and you can see a room full of people who will testify to God's faithfulness and can walk alongside of you and remind you that we don't, we don't know what the answer is going to be, but we know who He is. He's faithful.